0: Good morning again. My name is Brad Cheney. I'm one of the pastors here at All Saints. And uh, we are very glad that you've come to participate in worship with us on this Resurrection Sunday. If there is any information you'd like about our church, if you have any questions about the sermon that you want to address afterwards, please do come up and introduce yourself to me or to our associate pastor, Brian Douglas, at the back door afterwards. Well, at the risk of sounding morbid, those of you who are part of the medical profession, and I'm sure you realize this, but if you're part of the medical profession, you are essentially in the business of delaying death. And it's big business. I mean, who's the largest private employer in the state of Idaho? It's the—it's St. Luke's Health System. Um, if you think about some of the Some of the most profitable um, areas of medicine and the most strenuous, oncology, cardiology, pulmonology, all of those. I mean, at one level, you're trying to provide the best possible quality of life for your patients. but, But essentially, your attempt is to delay that which is the dreaded inevitable. And it really is dreaded. I know that when I go to the doctor's office, even when it's for something as innocuous as a routine checkup, um, I always, without fail, have butterflies in my stomach, and I, I literally have to try and and lower my blood pressure because because we're all afraid of receiving the bad news. You know, death is filled with fear, even if we're not self-conscious of its presence. It's certainly filled with sadness. When you think about attending a funeral, the, the feeling of absolute loss that we experience at the death of a dearly loved one, the sheer emptiness that comes when, especially when a child dies. The fact that death hurts so much and is so fearful, makes the message of Easter a a truly fascinating possibility, doesn't it? Like, if it truly happened that there is life after the grave, and Jesus is not entombed in some shallow, uh, shallow patch of dirt in the Middle East, but if, but if it's, if it's possible, for him to have risen from the dead, he have, would have required an extraordinary source of power to do so. When you think about the trillions of, of human cells in the body that would need to be re-energized, I mean, the force that would be necessary to do that would be something um, ginormous and its quantity. But what if such a power exists? And what if that power is made available, not only to him, but to others as well? That's what we're going to explore this morning. Morning, And uh, I'll do so, I'll begin by telling you a little bit of a, a story. Shelton is a professor at Boise State in the history department, and he is probably the most vorace- voracious reader of biographies that I know. He is always He always has his hands on... The, the latest, the newest, and the greatest biography that has been released. Right now, he's going through a biography on John Wooden. Considered the the greatest college basketball coach of all time, Wooden, was at his alma mater, UCLA. Boo. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an Arizona grad. Uh, the, the Wizard of Westwood, Wooden, was called. He won... 12 national championships, seven in a row. He coached for 26 seasons. He had an 80% winning, uh, he won 80% of his games. And at the beginning of the first practice of every season of every year, John Wooden would take his players off the court, lead them into, into the locker room, and spend the first 15 minutes of that practice teaching them how to put on their socks, it's so great was this man's painstaking attention to detail. He would sit down, uh, Bill Walton and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and and say, "This is a sock, <laughs> and this is how you put it on. This is how you lace your shoes." Um, such attention to detail, controlling most of your greatest coaches are are micromanagers and unflappable. There was nothing that could get under this man's skin until his wife died, his wife of 53 years, Nellie. Uh, There's is almost, it's one of those famous love stories where he's recorded to have written hundreds and hundreds of love letters to her. And Wooden was known, he was a devout Christian, and when he was coaching on the sidelines, he would clutch in his right hand a silver cross. Nellie would sit behind him in the stands, clutching in her hand an identical silver cross. Um, she died, I think it was on the 25th of June. Every 25th thereafter, on every month, he would write her another, he would write her a love story, or a love letter in in, in memorum of her. He would lay out her nightgown on the bed beside him at night before he went to sleep. He could not, bear the fact that she died. And it, so the greatest, the most r- rock sturdy of a man, basketball coach in college history, begins his story, he begins to plunge into deep depression to the point of becoming suicidal. And his, his players cannot understand, you know, how, how can John Wooden, this man of such integrity and strength, be falling apart like this? And so it's not until one day his assistant coach calls him on the phone and says, John, You are not living consistent with what you taught us. John, you are feeling sorry for yourself. You're awash in self-pity. And Wooden's on the other line of the phone, just sobbing, saying, I know, I know. Because the pain of her death was so great that it made him forget that there is a power greater still. Ephesians 119, that's our passage that's printed in the bulletin. Uh, I, I pray that you may know God the incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Uh, why should you, or anyone else, trust the resurrection accounts uh, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? If you're unfamiliar with them, you're, you're going to approach them with a certain bias as though they were a literary fiction, kind of a prefabricated first century story to convince people uh, uh, of, of this being true, that there really wasn't. But it, I, what I would challenge you to do this Easter Sunday is just read them. You probably haven't read the resurrection accounts recently. Read them, and what I think you will find is that they read like the recording of actual events, and, and not like pre- prefabricated stories. I'll give you a couple of examples of this uh, first. Well, and Shelton's already kind of touched on it. Who are the very first people who showed up at the tomb? The women. In the first century, there was a second century, a Greek philosopher by the name of Celsus, One of the arguments he made against Christianity was that it can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know that women are hysterical, he said, and that they can't be trusted witnesses. And as sexist as that sounds, that was the view in the ancient world. Isn't it strange that the one group of people whose testimony would not be acceptable... In a Jewish court of law, happened to be the very first witnesses of the resurrection. Now, if you're going to fabricate a story, you could do it that way, but it would be very strange and unlikely. Another example there are several occasions in the Gospels where Jesus predicts the resurrection event. So he and his disciples are walking around through Galilee, and he says, hey, guys, by the way, I'm going to be killed, but then I'll be lifted up. I'm going to die, but then I will be raised up. He, like, there's probably seven or eight different times that Jesus says this, repeated statements. You would think that at least one of his disciples would have looked on the calendar and said, hey, guys, it's it's the third day. Uh, you know, maybe we should go out. Go out to the tomb and take a look. What It it can't hurt. But nobody says anything like that. And the women show up bearing spices and perfumes that were used to anoint a dead body for burial because they were expecting to find a dead body. That's what everybody expects. Earlier we read in... John chapter 20, the records this foot race to the tomb between Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is kind of a pseudo, pseudonym for John. They're sprinting to the tomb, and if you noticed, the guy who arrives first is, is John. The guy who goes into the tomb first is Peter. W- why such a recorded detail? Because what we, what we know about these two men, Peter, Peter was at least 20 years older than John. You know, John lived into, uh, his, his late night, the, he lived through, through the end of the first century. He was 20 years fleeter of foot. So he gets to the tomb first, but he doesn't go in because this was a society that prized the honoring of, of its elders. So John waits for the elder statesman, Peter, to arrive. And then when, when Peter arrives and goes in, then he goes into the tomb and, and John follows what you will find is that it's in the, the small details that give the story historical credibility. Does that make it certainly true? Of course not. But, but it certainly increases the probability. And what I would suggest, like I said, is that you would read the resurrection accounts with an open mind, and you would pray, God, did you really do this? And what I think you'll find is that there is something hauntingly real about it. Hauntingly real. Like this dialogue we read be- between Mary Magdalene and Jesus, how she mistakes him for a gardener. You know, that's easy to imagine when you have a traumatic event. This, this woman who has just been uh, covered with grief, and she's disoriented by what's just taken place, and her eyes are so filled with tears she's all glazed over so to speak that she doesn't even recognize him that just there's something hauntingly real about about all of it if you have a, an open mind to consider it as such well, i'm i'm not a scientist nor the son of a scientist but i've been told by scientists who work in with human cells in research laboratories I was reading the work of some gastrointestinologist research guy this week and, and he said it's amazing how fragile at least the cells of of the uh, of that part of the of the body are. He says you have to grow them in in the petri dish under just the right temperature and time and humidity and and all the other factors. It takes a great deal of energy to grow human cells and it seems as if you do something as small as sneeze as a in the laboratory they start to die well the human body is comprised of 100 trillion human cells and if you cut off the blood flow to those decrease the the body's temperature uh, uh, then those cells, a hundred trillion of which begin to die in mass. I mean, effectively, a, a dead body is is filled with dead trillions of dead cells, and really, it's hard to fathom what would be needed to re-energize all of those. This, he says, the biochemistry is very complex. You would have to uh, jumpstart it just in the certain order and way for Different organs of the body. I don't know, the, the, the cells that, are, that deal with the, the heart would have to come before the cells that, that deal with the brain. There's very complicated biochemistry involved to perform, each to perform their own specific function. If you go back to the Ephesians, what we read at the beginning, when the Apostle Paul talks about the incomparable power of god notice the illustration he gives he could have said the incomparably great power of god is when he when he created the the universe and its being which would be a great deal of power the, this power that god used to scatter the stars across the heavens pretty amazing but no he goes to the power of god in the resurrection and not because he has a scientific knowledge of of, of all of it but from their perspective, and ours. Like, there is no power uh, more, there's no power, it seems, uh, allayed against us that is greater than death itself. And so he points to God's power, the power that, that could lick the power of death. If you could experience that kind of power, then you would have sort of your day in the sun, <laughs> a vacation in the sun, and something to brag about. And that is what he, that's he—that's the massive claim that we're making. God broke the power of death. In Acts 2, Peter says, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. I know that if you're skeptical and you're here, it's impossible. It's also impossible for me to convince you You know, to believe it, and certainly not in the space of 20 minutes. But what I would like you to do is to consider several if-then relationships. If the resurrection is true, then what might God be saying through it? First, he would be saying that some of the deepest desires and longings of the human heart are... Justified, and they're actually signposts pointing to something that is real. Signposts pointing to something that is real. C.S. Lewis explores this line of thinking in his book, Mere Christianity. And basically, the argument goes like this that creatures are given desires for things in the world that actually have a fulfillment. So a baby feels hunger. Well, it just so happens there, that there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire? Well, there happens to be such a thing as sex. Creatures are not born with fundamental desires unless a satisfaction for those desires exists. If nearly every human being who has ever walked the face of the planet has, has hungered for life after death. Why why wouldn't that exist? And the fact is, that we're Americans. 90, 90% of us believe in a divine being, a, a presumably with limitless power. Couldn't it be that he placed those desires in our hearts and that he could do it? Lewis would say that, it, that your desire... Is is not there by accident, but it is pointing you to something deeper that is that is true. So that'll be one if-then area to explore. Second, if the resurrection is true, then that is amazingly good news, and it tells us that we will experience a physical future. Your future is physical. Every Easter, I think about a woman by the name of Joni Erickson Tata. She was paralyzed in a diving accident at the age of 17 and confined to a wheelchair ever ever after as a quadriplegic. While she was still, she was still young and trying to come to terms with her disability, she would go to church on Sundays and she would do so, of course, in her wheelchair. The problem was that the regular part of their worship the priest would call everybody to kneel down and pray during the prayer of confession uh, everybody kneeled except me then years later she's at a con- convention in which the speaker urges everyone everyone in this great auditorium several thousand people to get on their knees the whole room you know drops to the floor and she said up but i sat there and i couldn't stop my tears But these were not tears of pity. I had graduated from those, and I was crying because the sight of thousands of people on their knees before God was, at that moment, the most perfect picture of heaven. And sitting there, I was reminded that after the resurrection, I would join them too. I'd be free to jump up and dance and do aerobics, Me, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, and no feeling from the shoulders down. I would one day have this new body in which I could run a marathon. Uh, But the first thing I planned to do with my newly resurrected legs was to fall down onto grateful knees with the whole host and company of heaven before Jesus, my King. If the resurrection is really true, then Jesus is the Son of God and this world's true and rightful king who has, in the middle of human history, brought about um, a new beginning, new creation, a new future. If, as I said before, he's still entombed in a shallow grave in the Middle East, then he's just like all the rest of us and just like all of the other great religious leaders of all time. But if he's not, then he, he had access to a power that is, is mind-boggling, that, that is beyond... I mean, here it is. We try and harness the different forces of the world, and we're able to split the power of the atom. But, I mean, he had something that was so much greater than that. The world's true and rightful king, who came to earth to die on the cross for us and for our sins... Some of you have absolutely no problem with the category of sin because you look at your life and you, you see all of the, the, the terrible and stupid things that you've done and there's, you don't need any convincing that, that you're a sinner. Others of you think that sin is an outdated concept and, and that the only problems we have is, is not being true to myself and my own values. But the Bible says, That he died on the cross according to the scriptures for our sins. And he appeared to 500 people. And by trusting in what he has done for us, we are spared the judgment that is due our sin. And we are made recipients of his resurrection power. John 11 I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. Perhaps the most persuasive thing we can say is that there are are hundreds of millions of us around the world transcultural transnational who who truly believe that we have met this man. I mean it's easy to dismiss certain things but I mean there're 2 billion Christians in the world today and the majority of them are not in North America. <laughs> We believe that we have met somebody who is an incredible Savior and has given us hope and a reason to live. In saying that, I don't want to give off the impression that there's like an easy faith pill that you swallow, and it it brings everything into the light of of perfect certainty because, uh, no, we have, a lot of us have, have wrestled with faith. Faith is this lifelong struggle, but we have found in Jesus... An enormous hope to live and a beautiful, bright confidence for the future. Like even if you're here today, and even if you don't believe in the resurrection, at the very least, you should want it to be true. Because it actually means hope for this world. Well, let me close with a letter from a young German Lutheran, Lutheran pastor. He wrote to his parents the day before he was put to death in, an, in a Nazi concentration camp. This was a letter that was published after the war. His name is Hermann. He is not famous. Nobody has ever heard of him before. But here's what he wrote. Um, mein Vater. I don't know the German, but... When this letter comes into your hands, I shall no longer be among the living the thing that has occupied your thoughts and mine constantly for many months has now happened. But if you ask me what state I am the day before, I can only answer that I am first in a joyous mood and second, filled with a great anticipation. I am amazed what marvelous Strength emanates from Jesus Christ. In him I have put my faith. And today, I can say, I have faith in him more firmly than ever before. Then he tells his parents to pull out their Bibles and and read in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 14.8. He says, look in your Bible. What can really happen to a child of God? Of what should I be afraid? Everything that till now I have done or struggled for or accomplished has been directed toward this one goal whose barrier I am soon to penetrate. He says, like all of the things I've been preaching over all these years, I'm finally I'm finally going to soon see. For me, believing will become seeing, hope will become possession. And I shall forever share in him who is love. And there will be no more secrets nor tormenting puzzles. He he concludes, Today is the great day. From the very beginning I have put everything into the hands of God, and now he demands this sacrifice of me. Well, good. (laughs) His will be done. And so, until we meet again in the presence of the Father of light, I am your joyful Son, Herman. Don't you wish you could write a letter like that? (laughs) What kind of power can enable a human being to laugh at, to rejoice in the face of Master Death? Well, it is this incomparably great power for those of us who believe amen. Pray with me, please. Our Father in Heaven, help us to appropriate, the, the help us to understand the best way to appropriate these things that we've heard about today for our lives. Some of us don't believe intellectually in the resurrection. Would you uh, break through those barriers? Some of us uh, have not worked out the implications of the resurrection. We're are much like wooden and are not living consistent with its its truth help us to see that um, give us a faith that is is full of confidence and trust that Jesus Christ is who he said he is and that uh, our prayer is that everybody who is here today who has listened who has sung might not only uh, know Jesus, but but have Jesus, and and know Him savingly, the way that he uh, he, he wishes to be known. For we pray this in His name.